Sunders, this is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, the topic today is soft landing. We're hearing a lot of buzz in the media about, oh, the economy is going to avoid a recession. We're going to have a soft landing, meaning inflation is going to come down to the Fed's 2.2% target here without having a contraction in the real economy. Well, we've never had, historically in a half century, when we've had inflation, when the prices start coming down, we've always had a recession. You see, because prices drift upward over a period of time, and we've been seeing this since 2021, but they come down much faster. And when they come down faster, it's an indication that the economy is really contracting. Well, we'll see whether that's going to happen. I don't believe we're in for a soft landing. A lot of the soft landing talk is the result of the third quarter U.S. GDP when it came in at 4.9% annual rate. 4.9%, well, that doesn't look like a recession, does it? Well, I believe that was a one-time aberration, mostly driven by inventory accumulation by businesses. You see, businesses' anticipation that prices were going to come down and the holiday season coming up began stocking up significantly. That's what inventory is, inventory accumulation. You, various goods and services you produce, you uh, stock up. And uh, that adds to GDP, even though the stuff isn't sold, it still uh, causes GDP to rise up. One third of the 4.9% GDP in the third quarter was inventory accumulation. Now, the question is whether uh, that's going to be worked off here in the fourth quarter. In other words, the question is whether consumers will start buying all that excess inventory. Well, we'll see, and I'll uh, give some reasons why I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to end up with a lot of excess inventory, and that will be a negative, a subtraction from GDP in the fourth quarter and first quarter next year. Uh, this big... Uh, addition to GDP in the third quarter will become a subtraction negative to GDP here if consumers don't increase their purchases. And I'll give some reasons why I don't think they will. The second element uh, uh, that uh, all this hype about soft landing is about is that, oh, the consumer is so strong. The consumer is still, still buying things. Well, 
you know, that's a little bit of of a misrepresentation uh, because we have a problem when you look at consumer spending. A good part of it is not accurately adjusted for inflation. It's nominal. I mean, retail sales. Oh, retail sales numbers just came in last week, and it shows retail sales contracting in October. Now, you got to understand that, that contraction number was pretty minimal, negative 0.1% contraction. You could argue, well, that, that's not significant. Except that that's a nominal price. It's unadjusted for inflation. That if you adjusted that number, because they don't report retail sales adjusted for inflation. You know, all this number about consumers spending so much retail sales on goods. Oh, you know, well, gee, it looks so strong. Well, it could be all prices. You know, the increase could be price increases, not real sales. And that's exactly what's going on. Because if you adjusted retail sales, which is one-fourth of all consumer spending, if you adjusted retail sales for inflation using the CPI, you'd get a negative 4% or more. So what we got in real terms in retail sales is even worse than reported. October, negative 4 to 5, negative 5%. That's a big plunge in real retail sales. And now and that's October. That's when you start getting a lot of spending for the holiday season. That's not a good harbinger of where consumer spending is going to go here in November and December and after the first of the year, even worse. So all this hype about third quarter GDP not coming true here in the fourth quarter, I believe. Inventory accumulation not going to be what it was. In fact, quite the opposite. And consumer spending beginning to contract. Well, what does that mean for soft landing? Well, the landing may be more than soft. Uh, I really believe uh, we're, we are at a juncture here in the U.S. economy. I, I believe that uh, we are turning the corner into a very clear recession. It's not a soft landing. It's going to be a recession. Now, the important thing to understand is we are already in a recession when it comes to the goods sector of the economy. Well, what do we mean by goods? Uh, things. You know, you go out and purchase things. You purchase cars, you purchase furniture and clothing and uh, food and, and gasoline, right? That's called the goods sector. And the goods sector is divided into what's called durable goods and non-durable goods. Non-durable goods are goods you buy and you consume them when you buy them, like gasoline and food. Those are non-durables. Durables are things that aren't consumed up. They wear out over time. Different times for different things. You know, cars last uh, maybe a decade. Uh, uh, houses last much longer. Uh, clothing mm, depends on, you know, how you wear it and whatever. Appliances in the home, furniture in the home, right? These are all goods. Think of goods as things, right? Now, 
the goods sector of the economy is about 20% of GDP. Goods are manufactured, right? You manufacture them. Manufacturing is about 11% of GDP. And construction, housing, and other, you know, apartments and, you know, buildings, office buildings, and so forth. That's construction. That's maybe another, at most, 8%. Uh, today, it's much less because housing is in a real funk. Uh, not that much housing going on. Uh Applications for mortgages are down sharply. Uh, new housing is down because of the high interest rates. You know, the interest rates do do impact the goods sector and especially the construction sector, but also autos, uh, more than they impact services. And that's what we're seeing. You see, the goods sector is in recession, has been for some time. There's this economic indicator called Purchasing Managers Index for manufactured goods and for services. And the latest PMI shows at least six months of contraction. Purchasing managers in manufacturing companies are saying manufacturing is contracting. Well, that's recession, right? When it contracts. It's been going on for some time. And now services, for the first time, they're not contracting, but they're not growing. They're absolutely flat. So services are not growing anymore. They're stagnant, and manufacturing continues to contract. And, of course, you know, the contraction in, in housing uh, has been going on for some time. Uh, you know, the number of houses, uh, uh, new house construction and so forth uh, has been down maybe a fourth, a third uh, for some time, and now it appears it's taking another leg down. Mortgage rates hit 8%, although in the last couple of weeks they've abated a little bit to about 7.5%, but that's real high. You're adding hundreds, thousands of dollars per month to your mortgage because of that uh, mortgage rates. Okay, so uh, we are in a goods recession, and you can see this in the inflation statistics that came out last week. Both the CPI, Consumer Price Index, and the PPI, Producer Price Index. The producer Price Index is the prices that businesses pay for buying business goods from other businesses, right? And then those prices often get passed on into consumer prices. But if you look at both, they are contracting. Both are contracting sharply in the goods area. So the recession in the goods sector is clearly being reflected in prices in the goods sector. Just to give you some uh, specifics here, recent CPI that uh, came out last week, what do, what do we see in the goods sector? Let's see. Uh, uh, what about uh, uh, durable goods? Hmm? Uh, durable goods contracted now for three months in a row, the prices of durable goods, and the contraction is accelerating. What about non-durables? Well, non-durables in September, August and September actually rose, but in October they are contracting too. Now, the number one big cause in the non-durables 
is gasoline and energy, fuel oil, diesel, and so forth. That took a, a sharp rise up in August, 10% increase in August in gasoline. Remember that over the summer? And then in September, drifted over into September. But now October, it's contracting. And behind the contraction in oil and energy gas prices is the fact that uh, you've got global crude oil now beginning uh, to fall in price per barrel. And uh, it's getting harder uh, to maintain prices. And OPEC and Russia, OPEC Plus, are trying their best to cut production in order to keep prices up of global crude. Uh, but the global economy is is uh, weakening pretty fast. And it's a battle between them, you know, the OPEC uh, trying to uh, cut supply to keep prices up and demand uh, globally as recessions deepen in Europe and elsewhere uh, falling and that's pulling down prices. It's sort of like a push and pull going on. But I think uh, uh, the recessions are going to deepen. Uh, Europe's already in recession. Uh, and uh, that is going to uh, continue to soften uh, global crude oil prices, uh, which means that this trend, this new trend, after August, September of gasoline and other price rises, uh, will continue uh, after October, where we see a contraction of durable goods prices because of the energy price contraction. And uh, both uh, year over year, uh, both durable and non-durable goods uh, uh, have been contracting in price. And, and that's what's bringing uh, the CPI overall down. It's these goods prices uh, that are contracting as this good sector uh, slips further into recession. Uh, and that brings the total down from that 9% peak that we had, uh, you know, a year or so ago, uh, to the uh, 4 4.5% that we see now. But the services sector, as I've been saying, uh, is not contracting the way the good sector is in price. Services remain chronically stuck at around five and a half to six percent. In other words, the Fed rate hikes have really knocked the bottom out of goods prices, uh, but only had a, a limited impact on service prices. And we're not going to see the Fed lower short-term interest rates, erase short-term interest rates any further here. They are clearly stopped, uh, and we're not going to see any short-term rate hikes, uh, and that means the pressure of rate hikes on services inflation is probably going to be pretty stagnant. We're going to be stuck with services inflation uh, somewhere between 4 and 6% here uh, chronically. Chronically, it's going to be stuck. Why? Because certain areas of services are not responding to the rate hikes. Services don't respond that well to rate hikes. Look what's happening with rent. Yeah, what about rent? Uh, well, the rent prices are still continuing to rise. Yeah, we've we've got they're they're officially in the seven percent range, plus seven percent plus range. Rate hikes, uh, rent hikes rather. Okay, uh, and that's been pretty pretty chronic in that area, stuck in that area. Now, actually. 
you know, the rent increases are more than 7%, I believe, uh, for, for a number of reasons. One, you know, there's like 50 million rental units in the U.S., household rental units. And, uh, you know, maybe a fourth of those are jacking up their rents uh, 20, 25%. And uh, maybe, you know, another fourth are stuck. They can't uh, raise them uh, until later. Uh, another year or something, you know, because of rental contracts. Uh, but when you uh, average out the 20%, when you average out those who are actually getting hit with these, you know, incredible rent hikes uh, across all the 50 million rental units, well, then you get a number that's much less than 20, 25%. You get 7%. But for those who are having to pay 20, 25%, uh, it's, it's a big burden on their cash flow and their consumption. Uh, so we have this problem of rents that are stuck and they're high. Another problem we have is insurances uh, that are going through the roof as well. Auto insurances, for example, are uh, growing, uh, rising at more than 20%. You know, if any of you have had to renew your auto insurance, uh, your home insurance to some extent too, um, it's a big, a big hit, uh, you know, on your budget. Uh, why, why, why are the insurance companies? Because they're monopolistic. Uh, they raise prices because they can, because they're price gouging everybody. Uh, new car prices. Well, have you gone out and looked at a new car lately? I, I mean, I did the other day just to find out what was going on with these prices, and they are horrendous. The new car prices. You can't buy a car under $50,000. Pretty much a new car, you know, a mid-level new car, $50,000. You know, five, six years ago, that $50,000 would get you a luxury car. Uh, but now it's sort of a mid-range car for $50,000, $58,000. I don't know how people are affording this. Well, they're stretching out uh, 72 months now is the average for an auto loan, that's an average, and actually you got 84 months and, and higher um, because the interest rates are so abhorrent here to buy a new car. Anyway, uh, you know, new car prices are high, and that pulls up auto insurance, or vice versa. Both of them sort of cause each other to go up. Uh, but the uh, insurance companies are, uh, are monopolistic, which means they... Uh, don't have competition, and they raise their their prices in tandem with each other. And uh, well, that's supposed to be uh, antitrust. Yeah, well, there's no such thing as antitrust anymore in the U.S. That's gone. That's only on paper. Okay, so services prices are still in a five and a half percent annual ra uh, range here, um, and uh, it doesn't look like they're going to go down very much. Uh, the recession has to get much worse uh, to start having an impact on service prices. See, the problem with services is, uh, you know, you you don't have a, a fi you don't finance services that much, right? Uh, some some areas you might, but you don't finance them by taking out a loan. So interest rate hikes uh, don't impact services that much. And you know, I'm talking about all kinds of services. You know, there's education services, right? 
There's personal services of various kinds. Uh, there's business services, professional services. It's 80% of the economy. 80% of GDP is, is services. Okay. Uh, actually, the inflation is much higher than is being reported. Why? Well, this gets you into some technical areas that most people aren't aware of. For example, CPI is far more accurate, but not perfectly so, uh, than these other two indexes that the government uses. The Fed, Federal Reserve uses the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditures, uh, and uh, uh, Census Department, Commerce Department, when they report uh, GDP, uses another GDP deflator index, it's called. Uh, but those are very conservative. In other words, uh, because you're looking at all the goods and services in the entire economy, uh, and that sort of smooths out the numbers for uh, items that are rising in price. So the price level is much less in those indicators. And by the way, uh, those inflation indicators, PCE and GDP deflator, uh, are really estimations, you know, using certain methodologies and uh, ways of estimating. They aren't really going, you know, the government doesn't go out with the PCE and uh, talk to uh, stores and so forth and say, well, what's your price change this month? You know, it doesn't do that. It's all, it's all the uh, algorithms or whatever you want to call it, right, that they estimate what's, what's going on, unlike the CPI. And the CPI, the government actually uh, c conducts uh, surveys, you know, 50,000, 60,000 surveys. It goes out there and it talks to businesses and consumers and everything. So it's a much more accurate. But there are some problems, even with the CPI, which causes the CPI to underestimate inflation. What are they? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. You probably never heard of these things. <laughs> and you'd, you'll probably scratch your head and say, what? Is that how they do that? Okay, let's take what's called hedonic pricing. Fancy word, hedonic, right? What does that mean? Uh, that means that when they calculate for a particular item, the price increase for a particular item, let's take smartphones, iPhones. Uh, there is a true market price increase, you know, maybe uh, you know, your iPhone went up, uh, the new one, the 13, whatever, went up $100 or $200, whatever. There's a price increase in the marketplace, but the government, the Labor Department, when they do the CPI, they don't record that actual market price increase. They say that, oh, the iPhone has so many more features to it. Its productivity has increased. Therefore, we need to reduce the price from last year, not registered a 10% increase in price this year, but let's say that there is a 12% decrease in the cost of an iPhone that we will then factor into the CPI. And that's exactly the case. If you look over the past year, iPhone prices, according to CPI, went down 12%. PCs went down 8.5%. And you can do that with a lot of technology-oriented products, goods, automobiles. We know those prices are going up. Well, they 
lower the actual price increase uh, to reflect, oh, productivity, there's more features. So in other words, a lot of these goods, especially if they're technical goods in the CPI basket of 450 goods, uh, are uh, lower than the actual market price that you're getting. That's one important way they reduce inflation, what they record as CPI inflation. Uh, how about another one? Let's take another one here. How about health insurance? Have your premiums gone up lately? Hmm? Have your co-pays and your deductibles gone up lately? Hmm? Well, those actual prices that have gone up aren't recorded in CPI. You know how they record health insurance price increases? I'll tell you. They don't look at prices. They look at health insurance companies' retained earnings. Retained earnings. Profits, right? How much profits do they have left over, right? And, of course, there's lots of ways the companies just sort of push off actual profits and retained earnings is what's left over after companies have spent all their cost and put away some of the profits, you know, in this fund and that fund and so forth. You know, they, they, there's lots of funds where, where they uh, can push into cubby holes here the profits that they lost so they don't have to report it as taxes, profits on taxes, you see. It's a real art uh, that corporations, companies undergo here, hiding their profits. Well, the unhidden part, retained earnings, right, is the number that the CPI folks use and they somehow estimate, I don't know what the actual formula is, but from the retained earnings, they extrapolate a price increase. And they say, oh, well, that's the price increase for health insurance. And you know how much health insurance has increased over the past year? It's fallen 34%. Yeah. Has your health insurance premiums gone down a third? I doubt it. Right? And then, of course, there's all this hidden ways of hiding price increases. Right? Uh, we know in food, processed food, packaged food, this is very common. What I'm talking about is, you know, you go and you buy that box of cereal, right? And you open it up in the plastic part, only half of it's got any cereal in it. Well, what you, it's, a, it's a effect, an effective price increase when you keep the price the same on the shelf, but you reduce what you give people. Yeah. Or they change the bottle, you know. The bottle looks the same, but the bottle's a little smaller, you know, for something that has liquid in it, right? Uh, well, that's a price increase, but that's not caught in the CPI. You know, giving you less for the same price is a price increase, but that's not factored into uh, the CBI, CPI. And a lot of that's going on in food, in processed and packaged food. Uh, so... That occurs with insurances, too, right? The amount of coverage, the amount of cereal you get in your box, the amount of coverage for what you're paying on the premium goes down. That's a price increase. And that's in addition to this phony thing about estimating health insurance prices from retained earnings, right? How do you do that? How do you estimate that uh, health insurance when you're talking about uh, Medicare Advantage, you know, or whatever, 
Medicare of some some kind, right? You, you know, your deductible goes up in Medicare uh, annually, right? And then, you know, if you got Part B additional uh, insurance uh, to cover doctors, that you know that that's going to go up. Uh, so what you got here is health insurance going down thirty four percent. Nonsense, nonsense. We know it's going up, right? But health insurance is a big element within the CPI, and it's going down. That lowers the overall CPI. Here's another one. Do we have mortgages and house prices in CPI? No. You know, your interest rate goes up. If you got a variable, you're paying more. That's a price increase on your mortgage, right? You're paying more as interest rates go up. And we know, you know, mortgage rates have uh, and, uh, have increased over 100% here, right? Especially if you've got a adjustable mortgage, you're, you're in trouble. Is that included in CPI? No. Uh, there's this index, uh, Schiller Index of housing prices in, in all the major cities across the country, Uh and year on year, that's up uh, 29%. Is that 29% reflected in housing prices, con contribution to CPI? No. As I said, it's not there. There is no housing price. There is no interest rate mortgage cost increase, price increase in CPI. And we know you know, housing shelter, as they call it, is maybe 30, 40% of your cost, you know, of your budget. How do they estimate price, housing prices? I'll tell you, and this is really absurd. You have this, this item called rent, right? If you're a true renter, 50 million units of true renters out there, uh, well, when your rent goes up, you know, I talked about that. That's that seven point something percent annually uh, average. It's an average, right, across all renters, right? That's that's rent. But there's something called owner's equivalent rent. What is that? Owner's equivalent rent is the rent, now get this, that homeowners pay themselves. Yeah. That homeowners pay themselves. Yeah, do I pay myself rent? No, I mean, that's so ridiculous. Right? But that is the substitute for house prices. You see, owner's equivalent rent is the substitute for actually you know, finding data and including data in the CPI for the rising price of houses and mortgages and interest rates and so forth, right? Owner's equivalent rent. Well, how much did that rise? Oh, that rose 6%, 6 percent, 6 point something percent year over year. Owner's equivalent rent, substitute, proxy for real house price increases at, that have gone up at least 29% on more or more, you know, depending on the region. That's a big way of keeping the CPI down. You don't include housing prices. You use owner equivalent rent, which is less than actual rent increases, 
that true renters pay. Now, both of these, owner equivalent rent and true rent, uh, as I said, are stuck at around an average of 7%. It's hard to get that to come down until you have a deeper recession, then it will come down. Uh, what about base year? This is a technical thing, you know. Every rate increase, every item, uh, its increase in price has a, what's called the base index year, the base at which the percent increase uh, is measured from, right? Uh, now, a lot of these products have different base years. For example, if, if I use my base year when there was a recession, when prices were low, then subsequently um, my price increases will be much higher than if I use the base year in which prices were generally high and the economy was hot, right? Then I would have less uh, of uh, inflation ever since because the base, you know, is higher rather than lower. Well, you know, you would think that everyone's going to, you know, every item is going to have the same base year. Well, it doesn't in the CPI. There's all, the base years are all over the place, right? And if the base years pick, uh, you know, a period of high inflation, which they tend to, tend to do for most of them, you know, the Labor Department in doing the CPI, a lot of ways to smooth out these numbers. You see, that's, that's what the Labor Department, Commerce Department do. They try to smooth out these numbers with all these adjustments, seasonality adjustments and so forth, you know, so we don't get the swings. Well, the actual swing, the actual prices are in the swings. Well, you average them out. Look, a statistic is not the real number. A statistic is a manipulation on the real data. All statistics are manipulation on real data. Okay, so those are some of the problems why the CPI, the best indicator of inflation, uh, has some real problems, and the problems all tend to share the characteristic of underestimating inflation. Even so, inflation seems to be stuck at 55 6% for services, not for goods. The goods are coming down fast because we got a recession already in the goods sector. The goods are coming down fast, right? Okay, uh, you know, some services are coming down like airfares, uh, that's, that's been coming down because it's a seasonal thing, you know, people don't travel as much in, in the fall, October. Uh, they'll start traveling more here in uh, November and Christmas, and the prices will go up. But uh, in October, the numbers uh, finally contracted a little bit in airline services. Um, uh, auto prices uh, have come down a little bit. Uh, you know, people tend not to buy as many new cars when there's negotiations going on. Uh, in fact, you know, there was always a rule of thumb. Never buy a new automobile in a year in which you have a union contract and strike. Yeah, because there's usually problems with quality control. Never buy an auto in those particular years. Okay, uh, fuel oil has come down dramatically. You know, it was rising along with gasoline. Fuel oil is what uh, a lot of the homes in the East uh, heat, heat their homes with. Uh, that, that's, that's come down dr dramatically. 
Uh, and over the year, 21% uh, declined in fuel oil prices. Uh, natural gas prices down 15%. Uh, uh, gasoline down 5% over the course of a year, right? Uh, food prices, a lot of food prices come down. Um, milk, eggs. Ah, but interestingly, uh, baked goods, bread and so forth, cookies, etc., cetera, uh, they're still stuck at more than 6%. Frozen foods are more are still double digit. Frozen foods, packaged foods, baby foods still almost 10%. Uh, well, why are these food prices stuck and so high when all these other food prices, you know, vegetables, fruits, whatever, is coming down? Uh, because those are the industries that are monopolistic. You know, there's only like three or four baked good companies in the, in the U.S., and they keep their prices high. The same with the processed uh, foods, frozen foods, etc. I think there's only two baby food companies. Uh, so... Uh, you know, monopoly keeps the price highs. And that's why you got some food prices that are that are still high. A lot of price gouging going on there. Uh, we had a lot of price gouging going on in energy, uh, gasoline and so forth here. But it looks like with the global recession, as I said, uh, global crude prices uh, weakening, uh, that that's beginning to spill over. There's an excess of supply uh, beginning to appear in uh, and crude oil and processed oil. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> that's the picture uh, with inflation, at least consumer inflation. Now, supporting this view that we have goods prices coming down fast, but service prices stuck, is the PPI index, producer price index, PPI. Those are the prices that are, it's mostly goods. PPI is mostly goods. Very few services there. Uh, and, of course, if the good, good, the cost, the price of goods are rising for businesses, they're going to pass that on, right? So that price increase gets passed on into consumer prices or vice versa. If you have a contraction of prices in producer, producer goods, that tends to spill over, except in the monopolistic areas, tends to spill over into lower CPI prices with a lag. Well, producer prices have collapsed in October, the biggest price decline since March of 2020. Remember March of 2020? That's when everything shut down. Yeah. So we have a big backlog push coming on lower cost goods prices that will spill over, continue to spill over into uh, consumer prices. Okay, so bottom line, just to summarize one more time, very quickly, what's the inflation picture? Uh, inadequate, it's higher than it is, but nonetheless, what is the inflation picture? Goods prices coming down because of the recession already here in the goods sector. And they will continue to come down driven by energy prices. Okay, that's the picture. Uh, now, goods inflation, why would we have a spillover to services, 80% of the economy coming here in the next quarter and first quarter of the next year? Well, for the following reasons, I think. Uh, one, 
if you look at recession, you look at GDP, there's four areas of the economy that constitute GDP, gross domestic product, right? Which is the measure of whether the economy is growing or contracting. Four areas. One is consumer spending. Consumer spending is like two-thirds, at least, of the total uh, GDP. Uh, and then you have uh, uh, government spending, which is you know somewhere between 20-24% of GDP. Uh, much of that, of course, is uh, spending on, uh, on war and defense, maybe a, a third. Uh, anyway, uh, of discretionary spending is war and defense. You know, we're spending over $1 trillion a year. I think the total uh, government budget to spend is like $3.7 trillion, something like that. So, you know, you've got at least a fourth of, uh, of your U.S. budget is, is war spending. All right, so uh, uh, the government, 20, 24%. Consumers, consumption spending, you know, 66 to 70%. Another area is uh, investment, business investment, which is lower than the other two, but very important because business investment uh, drives employment. And employment means wages, and wages mean income for consumer spending, you see, so... Uh, it it uh, punches up uh, for its weight class here, you might say, uh, investment, business investment. Now, as I said earlier, we had this big boost in inventory in the third quarter. That's going away and going to move in the opposite direction. We'll have a correction in inventory spending. Inventory is an element of uh, inve business investment. You know, just like consumption, you have what? Good sector, which is durables and non-durables, and then you have services spending by consumers. That's the consumption. That's the 66%. You got investment, business investment, business spending, invent on inventories, on new plant and equipment, and on this thing called intellectual property, and of course on on uh, construction, you know, res residential construction, which gets put into business. Investment. It's not in consumption. It's in business investment. Uh, okay, so let's look at uh, investment, those four areas. Inventory is going to contract. Uh, what about plant and equipment? Well, October showed a big slowdown in business plant and equipment, particularly small businesses. And small businesses make up the vast majority of uh, businesses in this country you know, non-corporate small business of various kinds, uh, they're not investing in plant and equipment. They're not expanding. That, that, that spending is negative. Well, because their businesses want to expand, they got to borrow money, and then your interest rates being high, you know, they got to pay 10% plus uh, to borrow money to expand. Well, they've stopped expanding. So Fed rate hikes have an impact not only on housing and construction and big ticket items like autos and so forth, but they have an impact on business investment in plant and equipment and structures, buildings and so forth. You know, the buildings, uh, uh, office buildings, you know, factories, uh, malls, uh, you know, theme parks, all that kind of stuff. That, that's, uh, that's what we call uh, business structures. Well, if you look at that, the structures, business structure spending is is flat, especially office buildings. And 
I mean, there's such an excess office buildings that's going to cause a, a financial instability event, probably commercial real estate, right? Uh, there is some construction going on in, in housing, not as much as before. And there is some construction going on in tech in certain areas for uh, uh, factories of sorts. Uh, but, you know, office buildings and malls and shopping centers and so forth, uh, uh, that is flat on its back. Nothing happening there, right? Uh, and housing, of course, residential housing has uh, really slowed down as well. Uh, industrial production has, is contracting now. Industrial production is manufacturing and mining and utilities. That's contracting, right? Manufacturing is contracting even more, as we said. Uh, well, that's not a great picture for business investment contribution going forward to GDP, is it? No, I mean, these major areas... Uh, are questionable. Inventories, new plant and equipment flat, right? Structures, you know, most of it questionable. Oh, but there's one area in investment that's called intellectual property. And that's continuing to rise. Well, what the hell is intellectual property? Oh, you know, it's a new category. It was created in 2013. And they call it investment. Uh, but it's stuff like company logos, trademarks, uh, software, research and development, which was all considered a cost, not an investment contribution to GDP. All that was added back in 2013, and it boosted GDP by $500 billion back then. And it, it's totally phony because the government asked businesses, for example, it says, well, how much has the value of your company logo risen, Nike, in value? In other words, they totally rely on the company to give them the figure for the price because there's no price that they can look for and find in the marketplace. So they just ask the company, well, what do you think it's worth? And, of course, the companies always bloat uh, those figures for intellectual property because it makes their balance sheets look good. So they say, well, it's increased 10%, right? Oh, okay, we'll add that to GDP. I mean, that whole investment category was created because investment, real investment, plant and equipment structures, so forth, has been steadily over the long term slowing down in the U.S., slowing down. Why is it slowing down? Because investors are putting their money into financial assets rather than into investing and building real things. Now, there's some real real thing going, building going on, you know, in tech and so forth. I'm not saying that there's no real investment going on, but, uh, you know, these private equity firms, hedge funds and shadow banks of various kinds, even commercial banks, you know, uh, it's much more profitable to put their money into financial assets, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And they do and have been. Which means, which means as a result, that real investment is slowly stagnating. Now, that's a long, long-term uh, picture. You know, in the short term, you may have you know surges up and down, whatever. But long-term, uh, that's what's happening. 
Now, you don't include financial asset profits in GDP. No, financial assets are not included in GDP. And, you know, when the, com when, when the government reports its corporate profits, right, uh, the big element of profits from financial speculation is not there. So corporate profits are maybe twice what they're really saying they are. Uh, but, of course, the lower you put it, the less taxes they got to pay, right? Uh, my point is, you know, except for maybe techs and some of these, this infrastructure bill, uh, and, and you, you know, you should really understand Biden's three three bills of uh, passed last year in 2022. He takes money out of COVID and throw, throws it into um, and social programs and throws it into in, investing in uh, uh, infrastructure and manufacturing. Uh, bill, uh, which is a big slush fund for companies to build more plants in the U.S., uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, so-called, uh, and the infrastructure bill, <clears throat> those three bills, um, maybe $1.65 trillion in spending, uh, you know, that is starting to have some impact on spending, you know, new factories, plants, and so forth. Uh, but that's a very limited area, you know, mostly tech companies and, and other related companies. Uh, most of small business is not investing. I mean, they, can, they, they can't partake in, in that chip subsidy act, semiconductor chip subsidy act. $52 billion given to Intel and friends, you know, as if they needed it, they're super profitable anyway. When the government gets them $52 billion dollars, you know, big bribe, whatever. Or how many billion does it get, did did it give to uh, a TSMC, which is a, a, a Taiwan semiconductor company, to build a plant in the U.S.? You know, and the U.S. is just subsidizing this stuff. Uh, okay, so uh, my bottom line here is, you know, consumer spending uh, doesn't look good as far as I'm concerned, and investment even looks worse. Now, government spending is going up. War spending in these three uh, subsidy bills, that's going up. Uh, the fourth area of GDP is what's called net exports. In other words, if you sell more exports abroad than you buy imports from companies abroad, that ends up as a positive contribution to GDP. That's called net exports, right? Uh, well, with the rest of the world slowing down faster than the U.S., uh, they're not buying U.S. exports, right? It's falling down. It's falling faster than the U.S. is buying imports. Uh, so that's a negative number. And the global recession will mean that will continue to be a negative number. So you got a negative number for net exports. You got a negative number uh, for new business plant and equipment that's puffed up by a phony intellectual property property valuation, you know, uh, and that's why it was created back in 2013 to uh, make investment look better than it actually was, right? Uh, and then and then you got you know the government is spending, uh, that's a positive thing, you know, both but spending on what mostly war, yeah, defense com company companies and war and. Uh, you know, subsidizing uh, this investment uh, 
uh, you know, to chip companies and so forth. Uh, and then consumer spending. And now, why would consumer spending be weak? You know, they're saying, gee, consumer spending is so strong. Why do I think it's going to be weak? Well, if you look at it, remember, we got this October retail sales. Retail sales are 25% of all consumer spending, right? And we got a big contraction going in retail sales. That's goods, buying goods, right? Again, recession in goods going down. But if you look going forward, what do we see? Well, most of the spending, even even as it slows, is on credit cards. Credit card spending, credit cards are over a trillion dollars now, credit card debt, and it's increasing rapidly here in uh, the, the past year. That's a reflection that people don't have the wage incomes to purchase things, and they're using credit cards to purchase things. Uh, that's not a good sign. You know, that's a sign that there, there are troubles coming here. Um, look at uh, median weekly earnings of the labor force, the working class, right? Well, it includes managers as well, uh, professionals. So it's, it's, well, but mostly at the median here. You know, most of consumption is due to how much wage income you got, right? How much savings you got, and what kind of credit can you get? Those are the three areas that drive consumer spending. Well, as I said, turning more and more to credit cards. Uh, what about savings? What about wage incomes? Well, if you look at wage incomes, uh, pretty flat. Wage incomes, pretty flat here. Uh, year to year, um, the number is 4.2% gain in wage incomes, according to government data. 4.2% wage increases. That's only for full-time workers. If you're one of the 50 million part-time workers, you're not included in that number, you see? So they conveniently keep 50 million to a third of the labor force out of their calculation of what is the median weekly earnings. And by the way, weekly earnings means hours of work as well as hourly wage. It's not just the hourly wage, it's how many hours you worked with the hourly wage. But the point is, you know, 4% is, is, is only full-time workers. Right? And they say, oh, well, you know, the CPI is only 4, 3, 3.7, 4.7, uh, 4.0 overall. Uh, notwithstanding all the criticisms I just gave. Uh, oh, so uh, wages are keeping up with inflation. Only for full-time workers. And only if you buy that lowball number of 4% for inflation. Look, if you adjust long-term, if you adjust, adjust what median earnings are, Long-term, if you adjust it for inflation, what do we see? What do we see? Well, in the fourth quarter 2019, adjusting for inflation based on a base year of 82, 80, 1982 prices, right? Back then, adjusted for inflation, weekly, workers earned $362 a week. Adjusted for inflation, right? Okay. What is the number now for adjusted for inflation for the median weekly earnings here 
40 years plus later. Remember, $362 in 1982 base year, adjusting for inflation. What is it? It's $365 today. So we had a whopping $3 a week real increase in median weekly earnings for American workers. Full-time. Full-time workers. Right? Part-time are going to be less. Right? Yeah. Think about it. And, I mean, even looking at it, nominal wages. And I was not adjusting for inflation. What do we see? Well, when the COVID recession began in 2020, uh, the uh, median weekly earnings was $1,108. What's the weekly earnings now? Not adjusted for inflation for median workers. Third quarter, 2023, $1,118. So a big $10 a week increase over the last three years. Well, actually, 20, 21, 22, 23 and a half years. A big $10 increase in nominal wages for median workers. $10. Is that an increase in wages? Well, we know prices have gone up, right? Prices have gone up even with, you know, CPI and its problems. Prices have gone up three years, well over 20%, right? But wages have gone up. Well, they haven't gone up. $10. As a percent of $1,100, it's, what, 0 0.001 or something like that? So no change. No change in median weekly earnings, nominal wages, not adjusted for inflation, since 2020. No change. No change in wages. And if you adjust it for inflation, $365 a week, which is the same virtually as it was in 1982. Think about that. Is that going to drive inflation uh, spending here going forward? What about savings? You know, I mean, credit cards. We talked about wage incomes not growing, right? What about uh, what about savings? Oh, they say that uh, uh, COVID. You know, the first couple of years of COVID gave everybody two trillion dollars, and uh, well, they still, according to San Francisco Fed, they still have one hundred ninety billion dollars of savings, right? Oh, oh, that's why we got 70% of the people living paycheck to paycheck, right? And uh, they don't even have $400 for an emergency. But they got all the savings. Problem is that savings are skewed to the top. Okay, no soft landing. It's going to be recession this winter, folks. Walk the street.